this week on the Backtable Podcast. The incentive is freedom. You know, we're building individual secure enclaves for every physician that signs up. So we're not creating a walled garden. We are creating a space for you to own and control and store your data and to take it with you for the rest of your career. And if you choose to leave our system and use some other wallet system, you can do that. However, I believe that we're building it in a privacy-preserving, secure way. And, you know, our mission is to give physicians the freedom to move, the freedom to practice. And, you know, I, I don't believe that there's going to be a reason for them to want to leave. But if they choose to, they can, because that's what decentralization is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com, and pretty much any podcast platform out there. Medtronic welcomes the Ellipsis Vascular Access System to its AV portfolio. Learn more about their new percutaneous solution for AV fistula creation. Visit medtronic.com slash ellipsis. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm t uh, today I'm privileged to have a co-host, Dr. Tim Yates. Uh, you guys uh, probably remember Tim from prior episodes on life in the OBL, uh, episodes 55, 56, and 109. Definitely check those out. Uh, Tim and I are really excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Leah Houston. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about blockchain technology, kind of give a 101 on, on what blockchain is and what, what the app, possible applications are in healthcare. Leah's got a exciting new startup that she's going to tell us about. But, you know, and many of our listeners are probably familiar with the word blockchain and, and crypto, you know, in the setting of cryptocurrencies, you've probably heard about it in the media, uh, in the finance world, but we're going to talk a little bit more about where it could be applied in healthcare. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Tim told me that, you know, you guys have talked previously and he, he says you have a very interesting story interesting background. I know you're tra you trained as an ER doc. Can you tell us a little bit about your training as an ER doc? And, and then we'll kind of get into how you became a physician entrepreneur. Well, I was raised in upstate New York and I was fortunate enough to be trained at Albany Medical Center for both medical school and residency. Um, I got excellent training there. I was fortunate enough to go back to the graduation actually this week. So that was kind of cool. Cool. And, um, Tell us about how long you've been practicing ER. Are you, uh, have you transitioned? I know you, you run a startup company, but are you still practicing part-time clinical work? Well, my transition out of clinical medicine wasn't like I'm leaving medicine to do a startup. It was kind of a combination of things. My mother got sick. And so I started to try to cut back on work. Yeah. And it just was a situation where I had to take some time off to take care of her. And while I'm sitting at her bedside at Memorial Sloan Kettering and she's getting her bone marrow transplant, I'm starting to work on this project. Gotcha. And as I noticed it was gaining traction, I decided to go full time and not go back. Okay. How long ago was that? Let's see. So uh, 2018 is when I pulled back on clinical practice. And then 2019, I uh, founded the company and began fundraising. Gotcha. And how long were you in practice before, out of training, that is? Yeah. So just under 10 years I practiced. Okay. Yeah. All over the U.S., California, Florida, New York. Have you done any other kind of entrepreneurial projects before this startup? I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I ran little businesses in high school. I started 
doing real estate investing right out of high school. So I did, you know, some residential real estate stuff. And yeah, you know, I've always had the spirit in my mind. It was always kind of like my side gig until I get to be a doctor kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, when your heart calls you to something, you kind of always stick with it. Yeah, no. And I kind of feel that way with, with the podcast uh, myself. It's just, you know, I definitely felt kind of stuck in my job uh, and I, after I'd been practicing four or five years and having back table really kind of helped me get a little bit unstuck. Uh, do you have any advice for other docs out there who, whether it's call it burnout or call it just in a rut, what, do you have any advice for docs out there who might be looking for something different? You know, we as doctors, like in order to be able to do what we do, like you have to kind of be smart. You have to be hardworking. You have to have grit. You have to have resilience. So in general, whenever we as physicians really care about something and want to pursue it and we put our heart and soul into it, we, we excel. So my advice to everyone usually is pick something you really, really love and dig into it just as much as you did when you were studying for your MCATs. And eventually an idea will come to you an opportunity will come to you, a connection will come to you that will help guide you to where to go. Right. Tim, you're a fellow entrepreneur. Got any, anything to add to that? You know, I think, uh, well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be back. And, uh, and Leah, uh, thanks for, you know, meeting with me a couple of times. We're very excited to have you here and to discuss not only your company, but blockchain and medicine uh, as a topic for innovation. But one word that sticks out to me that it was definitely something that was critical to me was not only having opportunity, but recognizing when you have to jump on it. And I think in my, in my opinion, uh, opportunities often arrive as amazing opportunities and they almost always arrive at the wrong time. And I think we talked about this, uh, on some of the OBL episodes too, you have to be willing to look at everything and there's always going to be some risk involved. And, and those are the best things when you do have to put some skin in the game, when you're willing to risk something, the rewards are usually going to be greater. So always be willing to evaluate your opportunities, no matter how they may come. Yeah. That's great advice, guys. Hey, Tim, let's jump into the blockchain stuff. You got it. So, you know, Lee and I have had a chance to talk a couple of times and uh, we uh, we actually met at the Bitcoin Miami meeting. Fortunately, we didn't get COVID, uh, although I think we did have a, a bit of a spike at one point. But I, I did want to um, thank you for being here because Aaron and I have been talking about blockchain. We've been talking about innovation in medicine and actually maybe even looking at uh, branching out uh, with the back table and in the avenue. And, um, you know, we want to sort of talk about how this might affect the medical community because technology is a critical part of what we do, particularly in interventional medicine for me when I do surgeries. So before we get too much into the weeds, I think Aaron hit it at the beginning. Everyone sort of, I think, has heard the word blockchain. I think even grandpas and grandmas at this point have heard the word Bitcoin, but I'm not sure we have a unified definition of, of blockchain. I think if you asked everybody here, you might get a different definition. So you got into this, you're excited about using this technology in the medical space. How would you describe a blockchain for someone who's just listening in for the first time on the podcast? So the way I usually describe it first, I like to point out the fact that there's a spectrum of what blockchain is. On one end of the spectrum, there's the open permissionless blockchain. And when we talk about Bitcoin, that's what we're talking about. Anybody can pick it up. Anybody can spin up a node. Anybody can transact. It is open. It is permissionless, meaning nobody's creating a gateway in and out. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the closed permissioned blockchains, which have a lot of the similar features of immutability, but they're closed and only permission to the people that allow somebody into that network. And there can be a spectrum of anything in between that, but those are kind of like the two ends of the spectrum. Super succinct. 
excellent uh, uh, way to sort of break in the listener. And the core here is really decentralization. And this is something that's a hot topic in blockchain. I think on the Bitcoin side of the spectrum, open, permissionless, peer-to-peer with no central authority. We're talking about a completely an internet of internets across the world. Whereas the second description you gave, the more permissioned or closed blockchains, you can utilize some of the cryptographic technology, but have it within a, a, a more closed or sort of safer, uh, at least what it would appear to be a safer uh, setting for say banks or bigger institutions. How, how did you get involved uh, originally with blockchain, uh, cryptocurrency, and then obviously transitioning into applying it to a medical space? So, you know, I mentioned that we as doctors are all, you know, pretty innovative and we're critical thinkers. And, you know, I, I mentioned I was in real estate investing. I also, you know, paid attention to other types of investments. And I used to chat with my fellow colleagues about it. And one of my fellow colleagues, Dr. Armando Clift, fellow emergency physician, and I were working at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami talking about our investments. It was about it was sometime in 2012, maybe 2013. and um, he said, oh, have you heard about this Bitcoin thing? I'm like, well, what's that? And he like sent me a link to a YouTube video and he said he bought some. And I watched it like for a while and then I watched it crash and I'm like, oh, wow, because I was about to invest and then it crashed and it like crashed from like $140 to $40 or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, and I, you know, I also was not really understanding how to buy it. Like I was reading about the public private key thing. Like I'm not, you know, a tech person. But long story short, I was very intrigued by what I was reading. And I really had this like feeling in my heart that it was something that was going to be very big and very different and was going to be applied across industries. So I started reading a lot about it, especially around applications in the healthcare space. And obviously in those early days, I mean, the, the, I think Satoshi's white paper was in 2008 for the listeners. And I think we really started getting movement in the blockchain space with Bitcoin back 2011, 2012, where to buy the problems with Mt. Gox and other uh, exchanges that got hacked. You know, we talk about the safety of these blockchains because they're cryptographically protected. And it's not really, this isn't a new science, actually. This goes back really centuries and 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 the, probably the most famous examples, we talk about the Enigma machine, uh, World War II, uh, which was decrypted by Alan Turing as well as the Polish. But why is this coming into the fold now, this technology that is not exactly new. Uh, what's so, why is it so innovative and what problem does it solve that our conventional technology doesn't? You know, I like to remind people of like the concept of a ledger and where it was born. You know, it was, you know, merchants, you know, hundreds of years ago who decided to start documenting their goods and what, who is buying what in order to be able to keep track so that um, they could pay attention to the books. And one day they decided, you know what, we should probably have two of these because they noticed that things were missing. And so if you have two copies and you're comparing them both and anytime something happens, you have to copy it on both of those ledgers, it makes it much harder for one, you know, bad actor to cook the books, say that something was paid for that wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. And so Satoshi saw this duplicative ledger idea and said, huh. What if we copied these transactions onto thousands of ledgers instantaneously? And what if at the same time we made it immutable, meaning you can't erase whatever was documented? And so that's, that's when um, the two decentralized blockchains were born. And so uh, the fact that these are now distributed across the globe where any human being can spin up a node and look at the ledger and watch it and make sure that people aren't cooking the books and decide 
you know, that these transactions are in fact uh, valid, uh, we're not at risk for collusion by centralized systems. And that's what makes people so excited. Super, super exciting to think of something so simple, really being so secure. And uh, we won't get too far into the weeds about 50% attacks and ways that the network can be damaged by, as you mentioned, bad actors. But suffice it to say, the more people in the network, the more nodes or computers that are actually generating blockchains, it's going to generate greater safety. So why do we think there's been so much excitement in the financial space and not really in other technological industries yet? I think because people are getting sick of being screwed, you know, sick, people are sick of, uh, you know, political events or, you know, environmental events having such a heavy influence on whether or not they can have a security enough to be able to buy food at the grocery store. You know, yeah, this, this type of technology provides a communal effort to create an opportunity for us to essentially go back to trading and bartering, but using our own tokens to do so in some ways. And to a certain extent worldwide, there's a large proportion, I'm not going to quote because it would depend on the study that you're reading, but we have large, massive numbers of people worldwide that are unbanked and underrepresented uh, in terms of their own deeds for their homes uh, and other legal matters. And this potentially, if you have a cell phone and you have an internet connection, gives you the opportunity to own assets that are immutable and potentially, as you mentioned, with your own public and private keys, you know, completely under your control. So pretty exciting stuff. Absolutely. And this is, this is actually where I found out about the identity systems. You know, I'm kind of an activist of sorts. You know, I've been involved in peace accelerators. I've been involved in public policy. And, you know, when I learned about this, the opportunities for this to allow people to have a secure voting mechanism, a way for them to count one vote. And you think about the emerging economies, the unbanked individuals, as you said, they don't have any documentation of even their births, so they can't even open a bank account. You know, I thought it was really revolutionary. You know, you told me a really interesting story, Leah, and I don't know if you're able or at liberty to give details, but can you, can you share with the listeners the experience, at least maybe dumbed down with credentialing uh, in, the, in one of the hospitals you're doing locums where you realized that the credentialing system was broken and that there needed to be a sort of a different approach. Do you remember the story you told me about uh, working in the ER with uh, your ex- extenders signing orders, et cetera? As emergency physicians, we are working with, you know, mid-levels who, you know, as a team and the way it's supposed to work is they, you know, they will see patients, they'll, you know, discuss the case with us, we'll decide together what to do. And, you know, when I sign off on those charts, it's because I actually was working collaboratively with them to diagnose and treat that patient. And most often I also saw the patient myself, even if it was only briefly. And so I've, I've been doing that as part of my career, but I left um, one hospital, moved to another different state and went back to the other state and found out that the previous hospital I'd been working for was essentially signing off on mid-level chart after I had left. And that led the Center for Medicare and Medicaid to believe I was practicing medicine without a license because my license had lapsed in that state because I wasn't working there, wasn't paying attention. And so, yeah, it led to a huge, huge nightmare for me. I had to deal with it. Yeah, it was bad. You know, and I ended up reaching a settlement agreement with the hospital and I ended up getting everything fixed and reversed. They realized it was a huge error. I mean, this is fraud, even though it wasn't intentional. You know, because they were billing. That's how they found out. They were billing for care that was not rendered by me under my name. But this is the problem that led me to put two and two together and realize that this identity system for voting and for you know, asset and resource allocation in emerging economies was an identity problem for doctors in the practice of medicine. And this could be used for that. 
Wow. That's a crazy story, Leah. Have you heard, you know, I know you talked to a lot of people. Have you heard similar stories from other docs that have helped kind of continue this movement? Yeah, I've had about 10 to 20 docs contact me with similar types of stories um, in different ways. There's only one other person who had something similar to what happened to me. But the other ones like found out when they were like looking up their PTAN numbers and their CQH and finding out that, you know, hospitals were still billing under their name. There's some that found out that their employers were still were billing under their names. Some had to deal with a problem, you know, a, a legal problem or a job loss situation because of it. And some of them just noticed it and it was easily reversed when they made the complete. But it's not fair that we we have to, I mean, we're already dealing with so much. Why do we have to be worried? It's like worrying that your bank is spending your money right. when you never know what, how much is in your account and you don't find out until you try to go buy a house and all of a sudden you don't have enough for the down payment. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about self-sovereign identity and, and how that would help solve this problem? I got connected with the Internet Identity Workshop, which is a workshop that's put on twice a year in Silicon Valley. And in 2018, I went to my first conference as I started kind of thinking about this idea because I realized that there was hundreds of brilliant technologists who had been already trying to solve this very problem that I wanted to solve. Uh, and they were building a standards-based, open standards technology to essentially define the schema for how this is going to work and how to solve the problem of identity verification on the internet. And so self-sovereign identity means that instead of your bank or your social media account owning and controlling and essentially giving you the right to be who you are and to say who you are and to do what you need to do, be it transact with money or write a medical record. Self-sovereign means you own and control the rights to do that, not a third party. And so uh, if you want to learn more about self-sovereign identity, you can look at the uh, World Wide Web Consortium, WC3. And you can look at the Decentralized Identity Foundation, and you can actually look at their code and how they're actually doing it. And that's the technology that we're leveraging in HPEC. Very cool. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, digital wallets, how, how those work? Yeah, totally. So cryptocurrency is one form of digital asset. It's the one we're paying attention to because it's money. You know, we can buy things with it and it's very quickly uh, and easily be able to be understood. But as you mentioned, there's people who don't have birth certificates or deeds to their homes. Uh, those are paper credentials, paper assets that some central government authority has to essentially keep a record of and attest to. With a digital wallet for a credential that you own a piece of property, you will no longer need that central authority uh, with the self-sovereign identity system. Uh, and so just like you can own and control your cryptocurrency in your decentralized wallet, you can own and control any digital asset, be it your medical credential as a doctor, be it your medical record as a patient, be it your title to your home, your car, your driver's license, et cetera. Very cool. Yeah. And so I, you gave some great examples there of like how this would be applied to daily life. You know, you mentioned voting, you know, having those online credentials, your passport. I mean, every time, you know, we go to renew a passport or do anything that has to do with identification, you have to scramble to find documents to prove who you are. I mean, it'd be amazing if we had this decentralized source where it's just click of a button here. This is, this shows who I am. This proves who I am. 
What, is there any, any other kind of real life examples that you can think of where this would be helpful? And, and you, you also kind of mentioned this before is, is reducing the middleman, right? Because the middleman adds a lot of administrative costs to the system. It increases the time that a list takes. Can you, can you speak to that and, and maybe any other examples where you've seen this work where you reduce the middleman and significant reduction in time and energy and cost? Certainly. I'm so far down this rabbit hole that I'm like kind of an identity freak now. But when I see problems, I see identity as a solution. Yeah. You know, who, who is it that you are interacting with over the internet? How do you know they are who they say they are to the point that you feel comfortable transferring money or giving them rights to your medical records? Once you solve the identity problem, you solve a lot of problems. Yeah. And so, you know, when it comes to healthcare, you know, we... Kind of, you know, just to remind everyone, the internet was born in August of 1991. So we're actually coming up on the 30-year anniversary of the internet. Wow. So many of us, you know, who might be listening, remember the world before the internet. And so what ended up happening is they built this technology and then they slowly started saying, oh, let's add this and let's add that. And it's kind of like, you know, you had like a little hut and you started adding a bathroom and a kitchen and, you know, an extension. And you know, you think to yourself, are you going to want to live in that house that has been slowly like built up over 30 years in that way um, with each new piece of technology layered on? Or you want to just kind of bulldoze that and build the new house now that we have all the new material and the new way of doing things? Uh, you know, we can 3D print houses now, which is really cool. Wow. So when it comes to technology, in my opinion, the currently available technology for us to document what we do for patients, treat patients, bill patients, insure patients, you know, accept insurance, get credentialed for all these things. It's broken. It's broken because it was built in this kind of cob job way as it was slowly being developed. And it's really time to kind of wipe the slate and build the solutions that really serve patients and the doctors that care for them. This is super exciting. Uh, and I think we're seeing, um, a similar buzz of excitement in this space as we were seeing in the dot-com boom back in the you know early 90s. Where do you think we are in the timeline, Leah, before we jump into your company? Um, are, we, are we early? Are we, are we middle of the road? Are we late for other people looking to get into this space? I think we're middle to early. I think that the real applications of blockchain are currently in development. You know, it's kind of like when Amazon was still just selling books and when Facebook was still only on Harvard campuses, Sage. And when Sergey Brin was trying to sell Google for a million dollars back in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> right. And nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> it's always the long game, right? It's always the long game. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think mass adoption is really what we need. Um, and, and as we saw in the dot-com boom, there were clear winners that we still see today and there were clear losers. Let's talk about HPEC and then I'll, I'll lead with a couple of other questions after that. Let's, why don't you tell us um, what your company is and what your mission is? Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, as a doctor who went into medicine to help people and who's seen how broken and corrupt this system is and feels, and physicians and patients are feeling this. And after what happened to me with the identity theft thing, I, I, I had already learned about some of the blockchain applications in healthcare, medical records, research and development, supply chain, payments, et cetera. I realized, you know, as I mentioned that Identity really is an important problem to solve for any of these. Uh, you know, without patient identity, 
how are you going to give a patient their medical records? Without physician identity, how are you going to document and how are you going to bill for something? I realized that a lot of the early solutions didn't have any identity layer. And so, um, you know, I realized that HPEP could um, alleviate that. If we were to give each physician their own self-sovereign identity, their own professional identity, where they carry their professional credentials, not only will we solve this $5 billion friction-filled, legacy-driven, paperwork-heavy credentialing problem that makes us all pull our hair out every two years, but we could then leverage those identities to restore privacy and trust to the physician-patient relationship. And so that's our mission. A huge undertaking, but absolutely spot on. A couple of things that I think will come up with our listeners and other physicians and other certainly investors for you is you know, this idea of patient privacy, HIPAA compliance, safety of information. I think there's a misconception that information is safe uh, in doctor's offices and on, in medical record systems. But the reality is that you know medical EMRs own all the information, even, even if you have contracts with an office or a hospital, really the data is really stored with EMRs. How can you talk about keys, public and private keys, and how that sort of completely washes away the old system and puts the power back in the hand of the individual user? Yeah. So with cryptographically secure public-private key pairs, you can transfer data when you know somebody's public address. They're the only ones who can hold or access it with their private key. Now, the public-private key systems that currently exist are pretty cumbersome if you want to be truly decentralized. And when I, when I say that, it's funny, it was, a, it was at the Bitcoin conference and there was a, one of the presenters was saying, no keys, no cheese. Meaning if, you don't, if you're not the one that owns your public-private key pair, if you have a custodian, you are not the, the sole owner. The problem is these key addresses are hard to remember. They're long. And if you lose it, you know, you're going to be looking in a dumpster like, they were on, you know, I forget the show that it was on. So right. yeah, so we need to realize that the barriers to adopting this technology lie with the people. The people need to be willing and able to secure their public-private key pairs, uh, willing and able to understand that, you know, if they want control, if they want to be able to move throughout this ecosystem, they're going to need to learn some new systems of securely managing their own data. But in general, you know, physicians have been have been the custodians of patient data for a long time. And it's the electronic sharing of that information that's led to data breaches. So if we kind of layer in the secure mechanism, you know, we can restore that, again, privacy and trust that we once had. It's absolutely amazing. I think custody is a critical term, I think, for the listeners out there, particularly those if you are invested in cryptocurrency, because it's the most obvious blockchain application, although there are myriad custody, as I think Dr. Houston is mentioning. If you own cryptocurrency on an exchange, you may think that you own that cryptocurrency, but it's very similar to what happens with the bank when you put it in your bank checking or savings account. The bank is using your money uh, and they're paying you a nominal fee often that doesn't even line up with the yearly inflation rates. And in this scenario, if you have your cryptocurrency on an exchange, you don't, you're not, you're not, you're not taking your own custody of your own private keys. Actually, the, the, they are taking custody. So it's an important concept to consider that you, if you need to take these, these complex cryptographic keys and store them in a place that'll be safe so that you don't lose your data. But when you take those, you really do take control and power over your information. So what limitations have you seen so far of, of applying this to your, your vision of physician credentialing? as well as patient to doctor communication in terms of 
acceptance in the community and, and investors? You know, the only barriers I see, the only limitations I see are with the people. You know, we as physicians have really been disempowered and our patients are being harmed. And it is now, this is an opportunity for us to decide that we want to fix this problem for ourselves and for our patients. And in order to do that, we need to take some time, learn about it, pick it up, use it, and regain control over the practice of medicine. So the only barriers I see are with the people choosing to ignore it, choosing to hope that the systems that have disempowered us will someday change their minds and start treating us well, which, you know, I think that that's unlikely. There's definitely an incentive there. I mean, just a recent experience, guess how long it took me to get credentialed at the VA for some part-time fee basis work? Months. Four months. 12 months. Well, months. Jeez. You know, I say two to six months and people don't believe me, but I know that there's 12 months, seven months. I mean, it's months. crazy. And guess how many people I had to interact with to get it done? Oh, Probably God. 15 people, uh, you know, employees of the VA system. I mean, it's, it's out of control the administrative waste that, that is going on out there. And I mean, that's, VA is an extreme example, but uh, I mean, that's our tax dollars right there. You know, that's the veterans that we're treating that we can't, that I can't treat because I'm tied up in credentialing. But you take into account, you know, the, the replication of all the work you had to do, Aaron, how many times did you have to refill out oh, that yeah. same form? How many people did you have to go through? How many phone calls where something was lost or it wasn't seen in an email? You're introducing a lot of room for error you're introducing extra cost, and you're ultimately hurting the patient-provider relationship. So I think it's just absolutely genius to simplify that. Simple wallet, credentials, you send with your public-private key, you sign it, the patient re receives whatever information uh, or whatever accrediting bureau receives information, and, and we go forward. You know, in, in the crypto space, the blockchains themselves incentivize people to use the blockchains by giving them tokens or coins for using the native network. What do you, what's the, what's your plan, uh, Leah, in terms of incentivizing people to use your system? Because it's not a cryptocurrency you're generating. You're, you're leveraging the technology to solve a problem. What's the incentive for people to use your system? The incentive is freedom. You know, we're building individual secure enclaves for every physician that signs up. So we're not creating a walled garden. We are creating a space for you to own and control and store your data and to take it with you for the rest of your career. And if you choose to leave our system and use some other wallet system, you can do that. However, I believe that we're building it in a privacy preserving, secure way. And, you know, our mission is to give physicians the freedom to move the freedom to practice. And, you know, I, I don't believe that there's going to be a reason for them to want to leave, but if they choose to, they can, because that's what decentralization is. Hey, just real quick, in terms of the wallet, because I use a Ledger Nano, and this is going back to your example, Tim, with, you know, owning your private and public key, because I use, I also use exchanges and I understand that if I'm on an exchange, I don't really, I don't really have ownership, but if it's on my, my wallet, I do have let, my ownership, correct? Yeah. So, you know, for our system, I want to be really clear that in the beginning, you know, we're building cloud agents, meaning there is a public-private key pair, but we as a company are going to be custodians of those, of those keys just because there's not enough literacy around cryptocurrency and public-private right. management yet. And because we're at the MVP stage, we need to make sure we build this in a way that works. 
you know, and we have had discussions about the likely need to build a hardware system or to leverage a hardware system to truly give people that autonomy when that time comes. So, you know, will it be a ledger-like thing? Will it be like a hub that also can store, you know, your patient's medical records? You know, we're not sure. There's, there's other decentralized uh, storage mechanisms. There's, there's Sciacoin. There's, I forget the other one. There's a company called Massive. There's many, many really smart people solving for some of these problems on how we can actually truly get to the truly decentralized system. But in the beginning, you know, especially since we haven't raised enough money to make a truly decentralized system yet, we need to kind of create these secure enclaves, create a private safe space where nobody can scrape data or get in and then give people an opportunity to store their information and later move to that fully decentralized system. Well, very succinct discussion. I think uh, you have a lot of opportunity and I don't think the answer may be apparent. You know, a, a ledger nano where you take control of your public private keys may be an option. And in that vein, um, where are you guys at currently in your stages of development Let's go back for the audience and let's go into the life of a startup and uh, kind of why don't you walk the uh, listeners through kind of what your first steps were and where you are in development right now, what you see for your next 12 to 18 months. Well, we had a vision to make this a physician owned and controlled company. And to date, we've been able to fulfill that vision. We've been able to raise a little under $600,000 from mostly practicing physicians. Some of it was on a crowd fund. The rest was on a pre-pre friends and family. And, you know, once we raised the money, I had to find the technical talent. And because this is such a new technology, I mean, so first of all, finding blockchain developers is hard, but finding specific self-sovereign identity developers is very hard as well. Fortunately enough, because I got plunked into the SSI self-sovereign identity community back in 2018, I knew a lot of people. I had read about all the projects and what I did was call every single project CTO and say, hey, you want to help us? And I was lucky enough that um, Seth Back, who is brilliant, who has built out the Hero Project, who's part of the Caring Network, wanted to work with us. And so he came on in March and uh, we have an amazing front-end developer who's been doing mobile applications for about 10 years now, doing our front-end. And so we've been you know, grinding and getting the wall complete and we are now prepared to do pilot projects. And I'm going to share something that uh, I just recently shared with our internal community, you know, I'm realizing, I did realize that we're kind of doing two things because we're trying to create a system for physicians to hold credentials. We also need to build a system for issuing credentials. So we're launching EverCred, which is a forever credentialing system where an institution, a medical school, residency program, state licensing board, et cetera, can uh, spin up a decentralized identifier and issue permanent verifiable credentials. And so we're, we actually got a yes from an academic residency program. Um, I'm not going to name names until it's completely finalized. Uh, and we're in the process of having conversations with our CME issuing bodies and um, things of that nature. So if you are in academics, if you are a dean, graduate education uh, director, a residency program director, and you want to test this out, you know, we have space currently. Um, I'm sure that once we push out this pilot, we're going to have a lot of interest. So, you know, reach out to us if you're interested. That's amazing. That's congrats. That's really absolutely, awesome. absolutely huge, huge success. And I think, um, coming back to the beginning of the talk, opportunity often shows up in a way you didn't expect. And I'm sure 
if you don't mind me asking, how many people did you have to call to get your first CTO to say yes? And how, how much of it has been just repetition, kind of knocking on doors, sending emails, making phone calls? How, how hard has it been? Technical talent is very hard to find in general. I, I, I mean, I'm getting emails and messages all the time. Hey, hire us for development. Like there's so many people out there who claim they can help you. But there's very, very few who actually know anything about this technology. There are so many people. I must have sent a request for proposal to about 20 different either individual technical people or development teams. And most of them were basically trying to convince me to just drop the identity piece. You don't have to do that part. You know, you can add that later. And I was like, no, 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 no. That is not <laughs> cool. That is yeah. the core thing that we're doing, you know. But there were some really great companies I talked to. and. I was strongly considering Big Binary was one. Sphere Incorporated was another. Um, I eventually found our front-end developer on Green Trust. Yeah, there was a bunch of a bunch of really, really great, talented people that were that were up for consideration. But I was really grateful to bring Seth on because I really wanted a partner and somebody who could, you know, become a co-founder to this company with us and come on this journey with us for the long haul. Well, we're pulling for you. It sounds like you've got a great crew. It sounds like you're thinking through things. Uh, methodically taking steps when they should be taken without rushing. How do you uh, see the uh, your client or your customer, the physicians and your patients interacting? What's gonna what's the interface gonna be? Are you guys and gals in the process of developing an app? You know, we're in a cell phone world. How 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 do you foresee people uh, interfacing with HPEC? We have an app. It's in test mode. You can go to our website and click join us and get in the pipeline to be invited to test. And then as soon as it's in full production, you'll also be invited to take part in it that way as well. It's, it's a journey where you log in, we check your identity. We have a, we're using Onfido to do facial recognition and identity verification. So that's an API that we're integrating in um, with. And then, you know, essentially what we're trying to do is, you know, we, we wish that medical schools and residency programs and licensing boards were already issuing digital credentials, but that's just not the case. So we're trying to bridge our current legacy-driven world to this future world where everything is streamlined and automated and self-sovereign and secure. And in order to do that, you know, we kind of have to do some things that will probably eventually go away and fall away from the application. And one of those things is you have to upload a credential, a medical license, a medical degree, a residency certificate, something to prove to us that you are actually a physician. The upload of that. We check your ID with, with the Onfido API that's integrated into the application. And if you are who you say you are and you are actually a doctor, then you're allowed into the application. Um, and in that application, you'll be allowed um, access to secure networks of other physicians who are either credentialed in your specialty. So people who have graduated in residency um, in radiology and fellowship in interventional radiology, you will have a private group of only people that you know have those credentials. Um, as if you have a state license, you'll be in a group with only physicians in that state. And you'll have like a profile, like a LinkedIn-like profile where you can connect with colleagues and you can, you know, create essentially a referral network for yourself. How do you know them? You refer patients to them. They refer patients to you, med school, residency, fellowship. You work with them clinically. You know them personally. And that allows you to essentially own and control your professional identity in reality. Unlike some of the other social applications out there where you attest to what you are and who you are and you don't check anything and you really have, there's no secure enclave 
There's no self-sovereign aspect to it. There's no credentialing aspect to it. You know, so we're offering a lot of um, huge value adds to the physician community and they hope that um, they get excited about it like I am. Well, I, th- I think you got Aaron and I on the edge of our seats and I guarantee our listeners' uh, ears have perked up. I think that you've touched on several issues that hit very close to home. You know, issues that we see, as you mentioned, in our legacy system that just aren't quite working with it the way that we should. We, we work in an EMR system where sometimes documentation takes longer to put into the EMR than it did with paper. Uh, we're looking to try to make things more efficient, certainly more private, certainly more effective for our patients. So I think you're 100% on the right track. And I, to that vein, we definitely want to help to make sure we get the information to our, our listeners. So we're going to try to get a bit of that information at the end of the episode. We'll definitely post the website so that we can get keep it in the, into the beta testing. And then probably one of the most important things I think you mentioned, again, I want to hammer for our listeners. This is a physician-driven initiative. And in my conversations with Leah before the podcast, they're really, really struggling diligently to make this a physician-owned and not a VC project. And so I think it's there's some responsibility for us to really listen and take a, a leap if there's a, an option that could change the game. Where are you at in, in crowdfunding and how can people become investors or uh, work on your projects? What, are, where, what would be the steps for people interested in becoming an investor? So we closed the crowdfund in November of 2020. And, you know, at this point, we're in the building mode. We're in the pilot project mode. But we really want to show how awesome this tech is. And then we are going to need to raise another round. I'm not sure if we're going to do another crowdfund. Crowdfunds are very hard. But if the physician community wants to do that, if I feel that it's going to uh, attract a lot of uh, physicians who really, you know, crowdfunding allows for non-accredited investors to invest. So a lot of doctors are accredited, but many are not. Um, and so if we were to do another crowdfund, we would probably make the minimum about $5,000 this time. But if we don't, we're going to probably have a $25,000 minimum and, and do it on a, a regulation deal with a non-crowdfund. The problem with that is it wouldn't, it wouldn't allow for the non-accredited investors. So if you want to be a part of this, if you want to become an investor in this, if you want to keep this physician-owned and physician-controlled, please click the Join Us button on the website and stay, um, you know, stay in touch with us so that we can reach out to you. Hey, Leah, not to jump over people's heads. I always assume because I, you know, I always try to take things at an elementary level. Do you want to just tell people what you consider to be an accredited investor and what that means for people trying to get in on a startup company like this? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, honestly, this has been a a learning experience for me. So I'm blabbering on about something that I didn't know what it was a year ago. So the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, uh, puts out guidelines, and, and they're really to protect investors from being taken advantage of by companies who are, you know, offering them the world and not really actually creating a product. And so I believe it was 2016 that the Jobs Act was passed uh, that allows for platforms to be built where non-accredited investors are allowed to invest. And non-accredited investors, you can Google it, and please do not quote me because I'm not a securities attorney, but it has something to do with whether or not you make at least $250,000 a year or have uh, and plan to continue to make that amount or have a million dollars in assets. And that essentially alerts the SEC to the fact that you're financially literate enough to make a decision around investing and understand the risks and the benefits of investing. And so if you're not accredited, you weren't allowed to invest in things before. And it was shutting out a huge, um, you know, number of the population of people who really wanted an opportunity to invest on the ground floor in startups. 
And so, you know, uh, crowdfunding companies, uh, Fundopolis is the company that we used. I believe we're still the leading raise there. Is and there's other ones. There's WeFunder. There's Start Engine. There's Crowd Engine. They essentially create a portal for people who are not accredited to gain enough financial literacy about the company, and in order for them to be allowed to invest as non-accredited investors. And that's also FINRA regu- regulated, SEC regulated system. Well, thank you for that, Leah. That's, that that definitely helps because I, you know, I wasn't aware of all that, and I I would love for this to to continue to be physician driven. Whether you guys go with crowdfunding or not, you know, hopefully uh, people will get on the website, sign on, and at least stay up to date. Do you guys send out monthly, you know, newsletters or anything like that for people who are are interested in, in submitting their emails? Yeah, every three to four weeks we send out newsletters. But if you want to be in touch around really, really high value things, make sure yeah. to put your cell phone in because we do send out text message notifications for you know, for example, our early adopters, you know, of this who are currently testing our application. You know, we sent them a survey a while back um, via email, and that's why they're now the early adopters testing. And so, yeah. Awesome. Well, Leah, we came up to the hour. Thank you so much. Any Anything else you want to leave our audience with before we wrap up? I'm really grateful that you're all taking the time to take a listen to this. I know it's abstract, but, you know, we as physicians, we took the Hippocratic Oath. You know, our patients need us to adopt the solutions of the future that are going to create and restore privacy and trust to the relationships that we had with them. This is our duty. You know, we're public servants, and I hope that you decide to join us um, and to learn more about this. Thank you, Leah. So excited to see what uh, what you guys got coming up. And uh, we will definitely provide links to all this information. Thanks again for coming on the show. And hopefully we'll bring you back, you know, in a, you know six months to a year when you guys are, are crushing it. Tim, thank you so much for being the co-host today. And that about wraps it up. Thank you to our listeners. Again, you can find all previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, backtable.com, or any podcast platform out there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, guys.